Hey, everybody, this is Chris Malanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. This is Burning Bridges, a 1971 hit by the Mike Curb Congregation, a large-scale vocal group formed by future California Lieutenant Governor and music business impresario Mike Curb. The MCC was a regular guest on the CBS TV variety show The Glen Campbell Good Time Hour. The sunshiny vocal group performed Burning Bridges on Campbell's show, complete with choreography. That TV exposure, combined with its appearance in the 1970 Clint Eastwood movie Kelly's Heroes, pushed Burning Bridges to number 34 on the Hot 100 in February 1971. The Mike Curb congregation would continue to make appearances on the Glen Campbell Good Time Hour until the show was canceled in 1972. By the way, you might say Burning Bridges had TV in its lineage. It was co-written by Lalo Schifrin. The man more famous for writing the theme to the espionage thriller series, Mission Impossible. Burning Bridges was a very different kind of TV and movie tune and, you might say, was a bridge to the next phase of Schifrin's celebrated career. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to expand on those episode topics, and enjoy some trivia. This month, I'm joined by a good friend and expert in her field who knows quite a lot about the mysterious world of TV and movie sync rights. Mara Kugi is president and founder of Superior Music Corporation. Kugi has spent close to two decades in music publishing, with extensive experience in both A&R and sync. She has placed hundreds of songs in various media, including the high strung's The Luck You Got as the theme to Showtime's Shameless, and projects like Killing Eve, Succession, and The Twilight Series. She has also signed dozens of major songwriters to publishing deals, including The National, Grizzly Bear, and Slater Kinney. Mara Kugi, welcome to The Bridge. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. And briefly, to kick this off, this whole episode was inspired and, you know, switched out at the last minute, note to my Slate Plus listeners, uh, because of what happened with Kate Bush on Stranger Things. Uh, so running up that hill was the jumping off point for this episode. And I just want to ask you off the top before we get into some uh, deeper details, are you as surprised as me that it's doing so well? Or as a sync expert, does this sort of feel inevitable to you? I am not surprised. Um, there has been quite a demand for syncs from the catalog for quite a while. There's a few factors at play here, I think, which is that a lot of music supervisors have a lot of familiarity with the eras of the 80s and 90s, you know, from a couple decades ago, because that is when they grew up. 
and they're kind of getting in the, into the place where they're in positions where they can place music that they loved growing up. The other thing is that there's just immediate feedback now from the viewing audience. They can Shazam a song, they can stream it immediately, because even 10 or 15 years ago, if there was a song that somebody heard that they liked, they would have had to find a way to get a copy of it, you know, go to the record store, go to iTunes and download it. You didn't have to pay for it. But now that's not a factor. You can go to Spotify immediately and raise those chart numbers so fast with just the touch of your finger. Right. So I'm not surprised that those two things have come together. But I am pleasantly surprised, to be honest, at some of the less mainstream syncs that I've seen pop up thanks to TikTok. Um, you know, things like pylon being used in a car commercial. It's really been a second life for a lot of these songs, and it makes me happy. Well, and it makes you happy because, of course, this is your business. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about your inspiration. So so what made you want to do what you do? And, you know, as a sidebar, you and I have uh, met in person several times because I've seen you DJ uh, your Soft Rock Sundays. And uh, I know you like to DJ. So do you see music placement as a kind of, I don't know, disc jockeying for visual media? It kind of is in some ways, but disc jockeys have a lot more freedom as to what ultimately gets selected because music supervisors really do have to run through a gauntlet of producers and investors and, and directors. And the producer might have a nephew whose band is hot, 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 and they want to make sure <laughs> they get a placement, which does happen. Or they just have a song that they like or something else has a, you know, a, a different vibe. So in some ways it is being like that. And in some ways it's also being a psychologist trying to figure out what your producer is really talking about when they say they want something that sounds more blue. And you're like, blue, that's a color. What does that mean exactly? Yeah. Do they mean the blues? Do they just feel, you know, a little synesthesia? That's so interesting. So there's like a psychological component to what you do where you're, they're asking for your help, these producers, and sometimes they half don't know what they want. And it's partially your job to help guide them to what they want. Am I right about that? Exactly. I do both music supervision and music pitching with my company, Superior Music Corporation. So I kind of see both sides of how it works. Um, as a pitching person, I'm trying to get them to use the songs that are in my catalog that I think are a, a good fit, which means I have to go through my catalog, select what I have and select what I think that that supervisor is going to think is a good fit for with the info they've provided to me. And music supervisors have to go through all the submissions they received, everything they've picked out on their own to try to figure out what their bosses want that's going to make it through to the final project. And plus there's budgets to be considered, which is something a DJ would never have to think about. Right. I mean, when you say a gauntlet, the word you used before, you really mean it's like getting over hoops and hurdles left, right and center, right? It really is. I mean, for every song that gets placed, I could pitch 
hundreds of songs by that artist and just get one placement. And it's just a big, you know, trying to figure out who is looking for what and what is going to fit their budget. A lot of times producers got into producing because they love film or they love TV and they don't know much about music, but they know that they love A Day in the Life by the Beatles. And that's the song they want for their opening title, but they only have $5,000. He blew his mind out in a car. Something tells me they're not getting a day in the life for that price. It's really, really, really unlikely. So it is the job of the the music publishers and the pitching people and the supervisors to come up with some lower budget options, clearable options that are going to work with the budget that they have. It's a combination of, of budgeting, papering, a lot of things that are less exciting than just picking out songs. I mean, not to be too cute, you just use the phrase a day in the life, but can you walk us through a typical day if there is such a thing as president of a music publishing company? Like, are you interacting mostly with artists or other entities like TV and movie producers, little of everything? Well, uh, uh, yeah, I deal with the music supervisors much more frequently than the producers. Uh, and there's a network of music supervisors that, you know, it's, it's a lot bigger now than it used to be, but there's supervisors and pitching people who kind of know each other and people work with their trusted sources. But on a day-to-day basis, I'm doing a lot of client service, a lot of artists who have new releases coming out. They have new songs to be set up. They have um, noticed something is wrong on ASCAP or BMI or CSAC. Not necessarily that there's anything wrong with any of those, but something may have been submitted incorrectly by a prior publisher or publishing administrator. You know, things like that. People want to be set up with co-writes, you know, different TV shows. They're hoping their songs could be pitched to certain shows. And I'm doing a lot of papering, a lot of negotiating of deals, trying to find songs to help fit people's budgets and sending options to them. Sometimes music supervisors just want the hot new stuff that they can pitch for their projects. Sometimes it's so specific, like we need songs that were released before August 22nd, 1976, and they must clear for this amount and they must, you know, have this tempo. It really, really depends. Right. And the specificity, I mean, speaking of Stranger Things, to go back to that example, I mean, the current season is set in 1986. So the Kate Bush song is a late 85 song is right on point. And people notice when you're anachronistic or or out of time. So these details matter if you're talking about a period movie or a period TV show. They absolutely do. I just worked on placing a song in Angeline, which was Bates Motel's dedication. Bates Motel, if you saw the Sparks documentary, they were the band that met Sparks at the farmer's market and then joined Sparks. This dedication of my life belongs to me. Wow. So they had this song dedication that they had not yet recorded, but were playing live in the clubs before 1978 when this scene took place. So Interesting. I, yeah, so I had to make sure that they were out and about playing that song in this venue during that time period. And if you look at the Angeline playlist, if you if you see what they used, I mean they were just spot on with everything time-wise, you know, songs that would have been played in Los Angeles. Like, they did a very thorough job on that. So, since this is a charts show, Hit Parade, I'd love to know if turning placed songs into hits is 
part of your overall mission? Or is it just too hard to engineer that and it's something you don't even think about? I would love it if it happened, but I have so little control over getting it into the circumstances in which it could be a hit. So I would say it's a nice cherry on the top when it happens. But for a while, I really did have to do a lot of client expectation management regarding that because a lot of managers were hoping that they could get a placement that would coincide for a specific single in a specific time frame. And that is just not something that from my side I could ever guarantee. And if I get it, it is just a really, really lucky bonus. And to use the word you used before, it's a gauntlet, right? I mean, think of all the things that can go wrong. Netflix decides to wait six extra months to drop the show. You can't perfect these things or time these things down to the week. Not even close. Um, and, you know, a lot of times you can have a great placement and they'll just cut the whole scene from the show, which has happened before. And it's happened the night before the show. So I always say, I don't believe any placement has actually happened until I hear it on the TV show or see it in the film itself, because so many things can really even change from the editing room till it makes it onto the screen. I was going to ask you if you have any good war stories, a story or two you can tell about landing a song in a high-profile TV show or movie that you didn't think would happen or, you know, surprised you or whatever. I hope you don't mind my using one that you mentioned, but the high strings, the luck you got was just one of the biggest joys of my life as far as my career. I mean, that band was working so hard. They were touring no exaggeration, probably 250 dates a year and kind of wow. playing the same venues every time. They weren't really getting any bigger. I'd gotten them some smaller sinks, nothing that was too groundbreaking for them. There was a movie where Ava Longoria was a ghost and I got them a background placement in that. But then when I pitched them, I actually had pitched them just for some general usages in um, Shameless. And the music supervisor for Shameless, Anne Klein, came back to me and said, you know, this could be great for our theme song. You think the band would be up for it? And I was just like, probably. And meanwhile, you're like jumping up and down on the inside, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it was pretty exciting, but you know, you don't know what they're going to be offering and you don't know. Maybe the band for some reason is against something or other. But anyway, that one we were able to negotiate successfully, but it's made a really significant difference in that band's life. And you know, Josh Mallerman, who is the singer and one of the really the primary songwriter for the High Strung, has had time now to pursue his second career as a very successful horror author. And um, Bird Box was actually written on the High Strung's tour bus while they were touring. Yeah, that was pretty cool. So now he has had clearly time to get his writing career up and going and is tremendously successful in that field. So like that placement is like the proverbial butterfly flapping its wings that has like effects that you can't possibly even predict, including on this one author's life, right? Yes, except I do think that no matter what, Josh would have been successful because he was just, he's so good. But it did give him a little bit of freedom to just have some money that was going to come in and the rest of the band too, which is nice. Sure. Because they were really working hard. I mean, they, I, you can only keep up that touring lifestyle for so many decades. 
I also wanted to ask you, looking outside of your immediate purview, about favorite song placements that you've admired. Maybe they're outside of your shop. Valley Girl had a, actually a sync that I represent, which is a two-thirds of, which is a million miles away by the Plimsolls. And I didn't place it because I was in high school or junior high when this film came out, but um, I do like the usage of a million miles away in Valley Girl by the Plimsolls. But this is one where I don't represent the band. This is Sparks. And there is a placement of Eaten by the Monster of Love. I don't want to give any spoilers for a 40-year-old movie, but it's just a scene where a kid comes home and it's playing Eaten by the Monster of Love as the main soundtrack. And he walks upstairs and you just expect something's going to happen and the song ends and something different and kind of better has happened. And I just think that's a really, really fantastic usage of a song. It just fits the pace so well of the scene. It just gets you excited about the song and the song is just great. So that's probably one of my one of my favorites. I also love the way you describe what you like about it. It isn't just that the song is awesome and the movie's awesome. It's like the usage is important. This is a point I was trying to make in my episode is that when viewers, whether it's a movie or a TV show, fuse with what's happening on the screen, their attachment to the song just grows that stronger, right? I, I, that's exactly. gotta be an element. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's songs that people associate with a sync decades later. Like Layla in Goodfellas, that ending piano part. It's just every time I hear that, I associate it with that scene, even though I had heard the song hundreds and hundreds of times before. Jimmy was cutting every link between himself and the robbery, but it had nothing to do with me. But a good sync just really has that power. It's kind of a little bit of a monoculture again, you know, where a lot of people are watching the same show and hearing the same sync and going to the same music services to download and listen to it. And, and we're all on the same page, or a lot of us are on the same page about this song from the 80s by Kate Bush. This is a bit of a nitty gritty question, but sure. for you, is getting a song placed on a TV show ultimately better for a career than a movie? Because I imagine if you score the show's theme, as in your example with Shameless, that could be quite lucrative, right? It can, but a lot of theme songs are owned by the studios and created for the studios as a work for hire. So it's actually not that frequent that an existing song gets licensed for an opening title, plus opening titles have gotten pretty short lately. So it just really depends. I mean, there still are some good syncs that I, you know, that happen lately from existing songs. But I actually think a TV show or a film or even a commercial can still have a really big impact or a video game can have a big impact. Great point. Do you see the rise of streaming TV as a net positive or negative for what you do? Because I imagine the monetary rewards are more limited when seasons are shorter. But then again, there's just so much content now that's hungry for your artist's songs. Where do you come out on that? It tends to be more placements for less money. There's more projects out there. But, you know, whenever any kind of new media launches 
two things happen. One is it's used for porn. Two <laughs> is that people try to get the, the licensing fees down. It happens all the time. And with streaming for a while, you know, there was kind of a lot of, well, look, you know, it's streaming. It's the internet. It's not really the same thing as TV. That argument has clearly gone out the window now. But there still right. are a lot, a lot of shows out there. I think expectations have changed in the past 10 years. And it really was an expectation that people were going to break brand new bands via commercials or big placements. Sync is the new radio. But I haven't heard anyone say Sync is the new radio since Spotify came around, which is fine by me, because then there's less expectations that I'm going to break a new hit. And there's a lot more happiness when I get a placement for a band that has been broken up for 45 years and they've all moved on to new jobs. Most of them own studios or they're producing, but a lot of them have just gone on to other careers. They're real estate agents. They haven't thought about their bands in a while. And I'm really happy when I can get a placement for somebody from a band they were in in high school or a band they were in forever ago. And everybody's happy about it. People like discovering new bands and people like having their bands discovered. That seems like a wonderfully happy way to wrap this up. Um, I just want to say thanks again, Mara, for taking the time to talk with us. What's the best way for folks to keep up with you and the goings-on at Superior Music Corporation? I have a website, Superior Music Pub, P-U-B, Dot com. And a lot of my placements and just general news can be found on my Instagram, which is at M-A-R-A underscore K-U-G-E. Mara Kugi, thanks so much for joining us for Hit Parade the Bridge. Thank you so much for having me. When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. Well, I beg your pardon. Now comes the time in Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia. And joining me all the way from London is Hani. Hey, Hani, how are you? Hey, fantastic to be here. Fantastic to have you. Thank you so much for joining us from across the pond. Now, I understand you just got back from Glastonbury. And I think you and I have something in common (laughs) because I think you saw a former Beatle as did I. I did. Absolutely. Look, this is an unbelievable, this is the best Glastonbury ever. In my view, we had Paul McCartney doing the set of his life. Bruce Springsteen came on as a special guest, Dave Grohl. We had Diana Ross. We had Billie Eilish. We had Megan Thee Stallion, Kendrick Lamar. And, you know, it couldn't have been better in my view. It was an unbelievable lineup. That is a very wide-ranging lineup. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, they did a brilliant job. Um, Unfortunately, I'm now sick with COVID, but I think it was worth it. As long as I don't (laughs) infect anyone else, uh, then it's absolutely worth it uh, for that lineup. Well, yeah, I mean, as long as you're on the road to recovery. uh, (laughs) and uh... I hope so. I'm getting my my excuses in early for for my failure in the in the trivia, but fair enough. Uh, I myself saw uh, McCartney at uh, the Meadowlands a couple weeks wow. ago, and I too saw Springsteen come out during that performance. Brother, 
I'll only throw this in because I know it will delight certain Hit Parade listeners, but <laughs> it should be noted that uh, during the performance by Sir Paul, another certain New Jersey rocker came out very briefly. He did not get to perform any of his songs, nor was he asked to pick up a guitar and chime in the way Bruce was. So this... Uh, this man whose initials are JBJ and who will otherwise go unnamed <laughs> was only allowed to sing Paul uh, a happy birthday, the happy birthday song, and not even the Beatles birthday song. So as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> Paul McCartney and I share opinions about which New Jersey rocker is uh, more valuable, but I'll just leave it at that. Oh, as long as you didn't have to storm out, that's fantastic. I will confess that I did sit down briefly and say, ugh. <laughs> but then, you know, when he was done singing happy birthday, he was off. So, you know. Thank heaven for small favors. <laughs> now, honey, we're going to do our trivia round. I, first of all, as I always do every month, want to thank you for being a Slate Plus subscriber, because of course we only open these trivia rounds to Plus members. And if you, Plus member, would like to be a trivia contestant, just visit slate.com slash hit parade sign up. Now, the other thing I want to mention, because we did something unusual in the month of June, we changed topics at the last possible minute. Normally, we split our trivia round into recap trivia and preview trivia, but this month, all three of our trivia questions are going to be callbacks to our TV and music episode. And then, of course, at the end, as usual, you'll get to turn the tables and ask me a question. So, Hani, are you ready for some trivia? Uh, as ready as I'll ever be. Question one. What show spawned TV's first ever number one soundtrack on Billboard's album chart? A. Peter Gunn. B, Miami Vice, C, High School Musical, or D, Glee? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it's B. Is that right? And I'm sorry, the correct answer was A, Peter Gunn. Henry Mancini and his orchestra's The Music from Peter Gunn LP spent 10 weeks at number one. It was later beaten in terms of longevity by the Miami Vice soundtrack, which spent 11 weeks atop the album chart in 1985 and 86, but Peter Gunn was first. All right, 0 for 1, here's the good news. We're not switching to preview trivia, we're just doing two more questions about our most recent episodes. So if you're ready, I'm going to move on to some more trivia about TV and music. Great, let's do it. Question two. In the Hot 100 era, what was the first TV theme song to reach number one? A. The Monkees, theme from The Monkees. B. The Ventures, Hawaii Five O. C. MFSB, TSOP, The Sound of Philadelphia. Or D. John Sebastian, Welcome Back. So The Monkees is definitely before... Uh, welcome back. I know Welcome Back was was a, a chart topper, um, but when I think of the monkeys, I think of um, Last Train to Clarksville being that the number one. I'm not sure that their theme song was a number one single. Uh, what were the other two options? B was The Ventures, Hawaii Five-O, and C was MFSB with The Sound of Philadelphia or TSOP. I think it might have been the sound of Philadelphia. 
And you are correct. You puzzled it out. The yes! correct answer is C, T-S-O-P. Not counting the pre-Hot 100 number one hit Ballad of Davy Crockett, MFSB's mostly instrumental theme to Soul Train was the first TV theme to top the big chart in 1974. By the way, MFSB, which is Philadelphia International Records House Band, stands for Mothers, Fathers, Sisters, Brothers, and the minimal vocals on the track are by the girl group The Three Degrees. All right, one for two. Are you ready for question three? Let's go for it. All four of these artists had an old song revived by a TV show. Which of them did not achieve a higher Hot 100 chart position as a result of this exposure? A. Billy Vera and the Beaters. B. The Bodines. C. Journey. Or D. Kate Bush. Hmm. So Kate Bush did have a higher placing, I think. Oh, it's actually, the rest of them, I just couldn't tell you. So let's plump for the Bodines. Let's give that a go. And I'm sorry, the correct answer was C, Journey. And this is a little counterintuitive. Really? While mm. Don't Stop Believin' did surge in downloads after its exposure in The Sopranos, it only appeared on Billboard's Digital Songs chart, not the Hot 100. Billy Vera's song that was featured on Family Ties, the Bodine song from Party of Five, and of course, Kate Bush's song in Stranger Things all experienced Hot 100 rebirths. All right, one for three. I'm glad you got that middle one. But now, here's yeah. the fun part. <laughs> you get to turn the tables and ask me a question. So... Hani, do you have a question for me? So, uh, this is a sort of transatlantic uh, trivia quiz, so I'm going to see if I can. You've obviously destroyed me in, 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 with your questions, so let's see if I can uh, trip you up by uh, taking you out of your comfort zone and, uh, Fair enough. and giving you something a little bit transatlantic. So, many artists have topped the singles charts in both the UK and US. All of the following artists have many Hot 100 chart toppers. However, one of them holds the distinction of being the artist with the most US number one singles, never to top the charts in the UK. Huh. Okay. I like this. So A, Usher. B, Janet Jackson. C, The Supremes. Or D, Taylor Swift. Wow. You're going to stump me because none of these is intuitive at all. <laughs> like, I could, I could easily guess that any one of those would have topped the UK chart. Um, all right, so it's Usher, Janet, Supremes, and Taylor. Yeah. I know Diana Ross topped the UK chart with an unusual single in 71 that was nowhere near a, a top 40 hit in America. But I'm wondering if yeah. perhaps... The Supremes, by some fluke, didn't top the UK chart. So skip all of the more recent artists and go with The Supremes. Well, that's nicely worked out, but I'm afraid you're wrong. Fair enough. Uh, it's actually Janet Jackson. No kidding. Asha has nine American and four British chart toppers. The Supremes got 12 stateside, but only one in the UK. It was Baby Love. Baby Love. And right. Taylor Swift has eight, but only one in the UK. Um, and Janet Jackson has never topped the UK singles chart despite a career that boasts 10 hot 100 number ones. So there you go. How, okay, so a couple of follow-up questions. You stumped me fair and square. <laughs> that is a spectacular question. <laughs> First of all, what's Taylor Swift's only number one in the UK? It, it's her worst song. It's uh, Look What You Made Me Do. 
Yeah, okay. yeah, that's Strange not one. a great Taylor hit, and I, no. I am a Taylor fan, but that is not a great hit. Yeah. And what is the highest Janet's ever gone, if you know, on the UK chart? I don't know. She certainly has had many. I think she's got to number three. Um, maybe, maybe she's had a runner-up, but she's never got to number one. She's, she's certainly had a successful career, but nothing has quite, you know, overtaken some of the artists that we've got in the UK. I think she's been a little bit unlucky. Uh, clearly, Michael, of course, has had eight. You know, but uh, she's never she's never done it. So, listeners, I pulled my book of British charts off the shelf to double check this, and of course, Honey is not only correct. Um, we've confirmed that Janet has had two number two UK singles at least through 2004, which is how far this book goes. Uh, and they include The Best Things in Life Are Free, which is a somewhat forgotten duet she did with Luther Vandross. And then the very next year, uh, her American number one hit, That's the Way Love Goes, also got to number two. But yeah, no number ones, which is just remarkable uh, because she does have a slew of top 10 hits in the UK. So go figure. Well, honey, I think we both are winners and losers this go around yeah. in the best sense. <laughs> I really don't mind taking it on the chin with that question because it was such a good question. I learned something from that question. And uh, I hope uh, getting one out of our three allows you to uh, have some bragging rights. I don't feel embarrassed. I feel quite well beaten and I'm very happy. Well, honey, thanks so much for joining us on Hip Parade the Bridge. It's been fantastic and I really enjoyed it. Cheers. So normally, this is the part of the show where I'd be telling you that those last two trivia questions are a preview of our next episode. Of course, as you all know, if you've been listening, our most recent episode was not the freestyle episode that I previewed in our May episode of Hit Parade the Bridge, but rather our TV and music episode. And as you can guess, this was a last-minute decision by me and the production team at Slate to pivot our topic for June, given the exciting chart happenings surrounding Kate Bush, Stranger Things, and running up that hill. To be precise, we didn't find out until Memorial Day weekend that running up that hill was even in Stranger Things. We didn't find out it was affecting the iTunes and Spotify charts until sometime in the middle of the first week of June. And we didn't find out until the following Monday, the first Monday of June, that running up that hill was re-debuting all the way up in the top 10. This is truly remarkable and to some extent unprecedented, at least for a song used in a TV show to re-debut in the top 10 like that. It was so remarkable and there was so much attention surrounding Kate Bush and her feet that we decided at the last possible moment, literally with about a week to go before we had to deliver the episode, to change topics and switch to TV themes, which is a topic that I'd been considering for Hit Parade for at least a couple of years. So I had a little bit of background in it, but uh, this was a last minute decision that we threw together. And the upshot, because we're now in the part where I preview the next episode, is we are still working on that freestyle episode. And our goal is to make it our July episode. So do listen for that in the next couple of weeks. This episode of Hit Parade the Bridge was produced by Kevin Bendis, and I'm Chris Malampi. Keep on marching on the one.